The Morning Show. Well, we kind of have to jump right into this. It's uh, 6.03 on a Thursday morning here in New York City, the 30th day of April 2015. My name is Michael G. Haskins, and I'm in the studio this morning with Katie Halper. Good morning, Katie. Good morning, Michael. You know, and I was asking uh, Jed last week, no, not last week, this week, because I was out last week. I said, well, what have you done with Katie? He said, mm. no, Katie will be here. Katie is, she's got it all together, and she is, she does. Good morning. And, um... Let's see. What do we have this morning? We have a couple of things going on this morning. A busy show, in fact. Yes, chock full of gems. We have uh, Trey Murphy from the Baltimore Algebra Project coming to speak uh, over the phone with us. And we also have Shaw, uh, Neil Norris, who will be calling in, um, who's an organizer in Baltimore and whose cousin... Um, was killed by the Baltimore PD in 2013. Wow, so we'll have that. Uh, Jeff Mays will be stopping by from DNA Info. That's at about 6.30. At 6.45, as always, we have Jared Murphy of City Limits. As we get to the top of the hour, uh, we'll have a, a, a conversation with Doug Rawlings. Doug Rawlings, uh, Vietnam veteran. Today is the 30th day of April. Uh, very significant uh, in, in terms of, of Vietnam and that history. So he wrote a piece in this month's Independent, Don't Thank Me for My Service. So we'll be talking to him about that. Also in the 7 o'clock hour, Senator Sherrod Brown will be talking to us wow. about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP. So that's going to be coming up also in the 7 o'clock hour. Katie, what else do we have? Then we have uh, in live in studio, Justin Williams, political... Okay, all right, so that'll wrap things up. A busy program, uh, got a little bit of a late start. The other program is over by a couple of minutes, but that's okay, that's fine. We'll work with it here on WBAI 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. Katie Halper, Michael G. Haskins are your hosts this Thursday morning. First things first, however, is news with Linda Perry. New York City public advocate Tish James said the city is experiencing a homeless crisis not seen since the Great Depression. Nearly 60,000 New Yorkers tonight will be sleeping in our shelters, including 25,000 children. And approximately 88% of homeless residents are either African American or Latino. And thousands of unsheltered Individuals sleep on our subway systems and on our streets and in our public spaces each and every night. And so that number is significantly higher. From 1990 through 2005, the city helped more than 53,000 homeless families. This includes 100,000 children. It moved them to long-term permanent housing using federal housing programs. Research showed that the vast majority remained in stable housing. They didn't return to homelessness. People like Robin Tucker, who says he came from the dungeons of being homeless. The drug scene, living in Central Park. And I got lucky where I did get the help 
to get pushed through the mill, but I ended up with my one-bedroom apartment. And, you know, I am here because I'm fighting to basically keep it, to show you the reward of having a place, coming from a dungeon, how you can just pull out of it get healthy. It, it is a guarantee when you have a place. So we have the answers. We have the tools. But in 2005, Mayor Bloomberg cut off homeless families and individuals from federal housing programs. One of the major causes of soaring New York City homelessness over the past decade, which remains with us to this day. Tish James says our housing stock is being flooded with luxury rentals and quote-unquote affordable housing, which isn't really affordable to regular New Yorkers. A lot of these condominiums they're building, I mean, and just for um, the rich folks, and not for the poor people. We've been here, you know, we have nowhere to go. Leslie Williams is homeless. He sees rich people taking up many of the spaces. It's just sad. Sad to see that happening. You know, and they say that they don't have enough housing, but yet they do have it. They need to start putting the poor people back in, the, in housing. We need, we need space. We need help. Williams says New York City isn't supposed to be a city for only the rich, but that's what it seems like. We all build this city. We all been here, you know, so just hope that, you know, means things will change. You know. Hope this new government, this, the new mayor will do something better for the housing of the poor people in New York. Councilmember Brad Landers says he's happy de Blasio has put 750 units for homeless back on the table. But it's still not anywhere near all we can do. Uh, so I'm proud that the council and its budget response is joining Homeless for Every New Yorkers and calling for 2,500 units to be put on the table, uh, made available to homeless families. That's still not even half of the annual NYCHA vacancies, but the difference it'll make to homeless families, many of whom are working, um, to be able to move into safe decent, permanent, affordable housing is just essential. Housing is a human right. In other news, Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton delivered a keynote address at Columbia University. She spoke about the criminal justice system and Black Lives Matter issues. From Ferguson to Staten Island to Baltimore, the patterns have become unmistakable and undeniable. Clinton went on to say that every police department in the country should have body cameras. Can I get a Black Lives Matter? One, two, three. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! There was a Black, Black Lives Matter, Matter rally at Union Square in Manhattan last Black night to protest the death of Freddie Gray, the Baltimore man who died in police custody. The Stop Murder by Police poster, 40 photos of people of color killed by police, stood high above the crowd. Feelings were pretty raw, young black women speaking out. Sabat Jordan with the Black Youth Project says she's exhausted by what she hears about Baltimore. I'm tired of hearing the same story over and over. I'm tired of feeling the same pain. I'm tired of looking at people who look like they could be my brother or my boyfriend or my uncle or my son. And I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted of it. And on the other hand, I'm proud. I'm proud that we are as a country saying enough is enough. I'm proud that we are saying we are no longer going to sit at home, sit on our asses, sit in our offices, and watch as a whole race of people is terrorized and brutalized by the people who are supposed to be protecting and serving us. I'm proud to see everybody out here who is standing up for justice. <laughs>
the New York City Police Department. Please be advised that pedestrians are not permitted to walk in the street or roadway. Thousands of people hit the streets in Baltimore and several other cities here in New York. More than 60 people were arrested. Linda Perry, WBAI News, New York. If you unlawfully obstruct pedestrian traffic or walk in the street or roadway, you may be placed under arrest and charged with disorderly conduct, a violation of New York State penal law. Linda Perry with our news report on the morning show at 11 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock here at 99.5 FM WBAI. Michael G. Haskins and Katie Halper in studio. And good morning once again, Katie. I mean, Katie, there's, there's so much going on. We have our first guest on the line with us already. Uh, there's so much going on locally. Uh, perhaps we'll be able to get to it, to it a bit later on in the program. But uh, we have our first guest with us this morning. Yes, um, Trey Murphy. We're um, very excited to be able to talk to someone who's in Baltimore right now. And uh, Trey Murphy is a youth organizer with the Baltimore Algebra Project and a national educational justice organizer with the Alliance for Educational Justice. Um, Trey, are you on the line? Yes, I'm on the line. Thank you so much for joining us, and good morning. Thank you for having me, and good morning as well. Um, can you give us a sense of what is happening in Baltimore and also explain what you've been doing organizing around the issue of police brutality? Yes, yeah, so what is happening in Baltimore is, um, and what you're saying um, from folks all across the country, is um, is different direct actions and um, protest methods that is leading to really a national movement. Um, right, and so in Baltimore right now, it's really ground zero. I mean, for folks who don't know, um, we're pretty much under martial law right now. Our city looks like a militarized um, zone with army men crawling all over the city, especially downtown, um, where they're down there with bigger stock rifles and different things like that. Um, and so our city looks like pretty much a militarized zone, um, which is really making things worse here inside of Baltimore because the folks here in Baltimore, the people here in Baltimore, just want to receive justice. Um, for Freddie Gray and the countless survivors um, who have been victimized by police brutality. So the role that I'm doing here, um, here in Baltimore, the role that we play at the bottom of the project is that we're one of the lead member organizations um, of the coalition Baltimore United for Change, which is the coalition that has been bringing together thousands of people every day to address this systematic issue. Um, and so our role here, my role here is to coordinate folks. Um, and so I've been the coordinator for the um, coalition for the past week um, and really trying to push things and push the governor and the mayor and even the president um, to understand that things are going to get worse and um, things are going to get worse and folks aren't going to stop protesting and being in the street unless there's some type of justice and the systematic accountability for uh, the police officers that was involved in the death of Freddie Gray, as well as the death and victimizations of countless other victims. Great. And um, you said that you were yesterday helping get to get people out of jail? Yeah, so yesterday, um, if for folks don't know, they did mass arrests for the past three days. Um, and so they arrested over 400 protesters. 
um, which they don't really even have the space to hold all of those protesters. And um, for the past, uh, some of our protesters have been in jail um, for the past, for more than 24 hours, uh, without seeing a police commissioner to, for, I mean, without seeing a commissioner um, judge who, or, or having a commission hearing, for the commissioner to set a bail and a trial date. Um, and so that's a violation of their constitutional right because you can't detain a person for more than 24 hours inside a prison without letting them see a commission here or not. Um, and also folks um, inside, the, um, inside the justice system, police officers, as well as um, the governor and the mayor um, and other members of the political system have allowed um, the jails to not feed folks, wow. um, which is definitely a violation of their constitutional rights. Um, and also, so wait, hold hold on for a second, Trey. So people are being held for over twenty four hours and are not being fed. And and if I understand you correctly, and then what was that about? Uh, um, uh, n not being, not seeing a judge and the commissioner setting a trial day. What, what was that? Yeah. So folks, uh, folks wasn't being fed um, when they got there. Um, and if I had to guess, I would guess it's because it's such a, a magnitude of numbers, over four hundred people. Um, but it doesn't justify that, and so it's a violation of their constitutional right because they're holding them for long periods of time and not feeding them. Um, as well as um, for folks getting there, they haven't seen the uh, commissioners um, or haven't had a commission hearing for them to set bail. And mm -hmm. so yesterday our legal team worked very hard and we got 100 um, plus people released from jail because they was violating their constitutional right. And so we're hoping today that we're going to even do even more. We have a team of lawyers assembled. Um, who is working on this. We have collected folks' information that they got released, and so we're really trying to move in a strategic way. But, yeah, you heard me absolutely correctly. You spoke about it all day yesterday, about the violation of constitutional rights here and the justification that the governor and the mayor and the police department is trying to use. Wow, and you're an education organizer, so can you just explain to listeners what the relationship is as you see it between education issues and um, the pr criminal justice system and police brutality? Uh, yes, sure. Um, so uh, first and foremost, I've definitely been working on this issue for years along with the educational system because they uh, educational justice issue because they are linked very closely together. Um, there is a direct connection between educational justice, um, the prison industrial system, the judicial system, which encompasses police brutality, as well as all of these other systems all across the um, country. Um, and the connection is really the fact that all of these systems um, play a key and integral role in this idea of systematic oppression and systematic racism. Right, and so what we're saying, what I'm saying, and what folks here in Baltimore and even folks across the country is saying, is that all of police brutality is a part of a structural issue, a part of a system um, that has a lack of accountability that upholds the current political system for which our democracy is built off of. 
Um, and so it's a, it's a system that's ingrained in the very piece of our democracy that hasn't been addressed in a real meaningful way since this country was originally founded. Right. Um, so that, that's the connection. And how extensive, you know, you hear people on Fox News, right, our big, our good friends at Fox News, talking about, you know, the quote-unquote thugs, quote-unquote animals, um, the violence, and they're really concerned about property destruction, much more so than they were concerned about the, the destruction of uh, 80% of Freddie Gray's spine, for instance. Yep. Um, how would you respond to those kind of characterizations of what's happening there? I think you just said it out your, um, said it out your mouth. Um, and I was in interviews all day yesterday, and one of the things that I had that I've been explaining um, to media and this, the folks across the country is that there is a major problem in this country when the value on property is much higher than the value on human life, especially mm-hmm. when it relates to black people. And so we have to be cautious not to make not to make that value much higher because you hear folks all across the country and even in a large part of it because of Fox News and other mainstream media, but you hear folks all across the country saying that violence has erupted in Baltimore right. when that is not the case. It's not violence, it's property damage. It's a major and huge difference. And also if folks recognize where the property damage has happened, um, they would understand the context of why it's happening, why property damage is happening inside those communities. And so there's been a disinvestment inside of those communities. And, um, and property damage, and just to be honest with folks, property damage at places like CVS. Um, CVS, where the majority, when folks go to that store, it's inside of a rundown community already where um, the government has chosen to disinvest inside that community. And so when the community, the reason why property damage is allowed to happen right there is because folks understand that, folks understand that they're not locally black-owned or locally community-based institutions um, and businesses. And so what ends up happening is that when folks funnel their money into a CVS, like, for example, that um, got burned down, the CVS is not paying any money to invest back into the community from which they're taking all of the money from. Right. So these property damages are happening in places, and specifically places, um, that is not beneficial to the community or isn't giving back some portion um, of funds or resources to help elevate the community. Right, and if only the police were as protective of the life of Freddie Gray as they had, as they're being now of the CVS, right? Exactly. If only the police, if only definitely one, if only the police was as protective over, as well as the um, city, state, um, and federal government was right. as protective over it. And can you just tell us about your your own kind of biography and how you got involved in education, organizing, and activism? Yeah, sure. Um, so I really got involved when I was um, twelve years old, growing up. Um, and for folks who don't know. Um, where I grew up is literally three blocks away from where Freddie Gray was arrested and um, where in the neighborhood that he grew up. And so I grew up, I come from the same um, neighborhood, um, around the same neighborhood as Freddie Gray. And similar to him, I grew up poor as well. Um, and a lot of the challenges faced in my family coming from a single-parent home 
a lot of the challenges facing my family was really about trying to make it out of poverty. Um, and so the majority of my family still lives at or below the poverty line, the same way as the majority of the community from which I used to come from, um, or from which I did come from, still lives at or below the poverty line. And so I set out a goal, really. Um, I've seen my family members die and be murdered, um, and these some, some, um, the majority of the time unjustly. Um, a few cases by the police officers, um, police system itself. Um, and so I set out a goal to really try to change the dynamic um, of what's happening inside of my city and even across the country. Because what I have found is that the reason that social that um, social issues is such a big problem is because justice is hard to achieve. And so, in the words of a um, of a wise man who once said that there cannot be peace without justice, we have to figure out how we can create a system of justice and accountability so that we can have peace and stability. And so a large part of my work has been um, moving forward and focusing on that end. But it's because of where I grew up, it's because I've had folks for all my life tell me what I couldn't be and what I couldn't do and that I would never make a difference and that I would never make it out of poverty and different things like that, um, that has really been my driving motivation and driving force moving forward. Mm -hmm. Uh, Trey Murphy, I'd I'd like to ask you, I've heard a lot over the past couple of days um, in reference to Baltimore about the lack of resources in the black community. And I was in Baltimore. I've been in Baltimore the uh, over the uh, the last year a couple of times. You know, family members uh, up and down the East Coast. Um, what? Uh, where are the resources being spent? I mean, I have an idea about the 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 Bay Area there. Where are the resources being sent? If uh, spent, if they're not being spent at all in uh, 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 black and brown communities down there, the resources. Um pretty much go out of the city of Baltimore as a whole. They come in and they go out. And so, and let's just take the Baltimore Police Department, for example. Um, Over 70% of our officers here live outside of the city lines, right? And so when you talk about this whole economic situation of trying to constantly keep um, economically um, funds flowing inside of the city, uh, you can't, it's pretty hard to do that when the majority of folks that work here live outside of the city and don't spend their money on the local-owned businesses here as well. So the majority of the money um, that, gener- that is generated from Baltimore leaves the community because either they don't go to locally-owned businesses, they go to all these high corporations that don't necessarily keep their money inside of here. Um, and they go outside of the community. And then I think the other um, part of that question, the larger aspect is that when it comes to resources in particular, um, every now and then they're going to pass um, the community uh, maybe, you know, maybe $100,000 um, every now and then, like say once every 10 years, right? And, with, and the issue with that is what ended up, is what ends up happening is that that money gets passed to organizations who aren't grassroots organizations, a part of the community who are charged with doing specific quote-unquote research work, 
for the community to try to figure out, you know, how to address the issues. But those folks don't come from the community. They don't understand the community. And that money is better spent. Um, if you're going to give money, that money is better spent on creative real on creating real sustainable solutions as opposed to just always doing research all the time. Because then this country loves to do research. Mm-hmm. Research is our major thing, but there's no action behind the research most times. Um, so that's where the bulk of the money goes to. And can you just give us more of a sense of what is what the atmosphere is right now? And when you're walking down the street, what you're seeing? I think folks are on high alert. Folks are on high alert. Yesterday we, uh, we, we, we had two um, protests. Um, where we had um, a, pl- a thousand plus people come out um, and march with us. And so the atmosphere is very tense right now. One, because we see army men deployed on our streets as if we're occupied territory, right? And right. so we look like we're occupied territory. We're in fact now officially in occupied territory because we have, um, we have the National Guards, um, the army on our streets, right? Um, so the tension is very, very, very high right now, and as well as the tensions between um, the uh, officials, uh, the governor and the mayor and local and state officials, and the community is very high as well. Because yesterday the governor tried to tell folks that, and the mayor tried to tell folks that they couldn't come out and protest. Um, even during the daytime, and they, they have set the curfew and put us under a state of emergency, um, and they tried to tell us that we couldn't protest, which was a violation of our constitutional right. And so we had to work all day yesterday to ensure that they didn't arrest our protesters for going out to protest. So the tension is very high, and the governor, the city and state government is trying to use tactical strategies to deter folks from elevating this message of justice. Um, that is much needed here inside this city. And folks aren't going to stop, um, folks aren't going to stop doing direct action and civil disobedience, um, and they're not going to stop lifting their voices and speaking out until there's some type of justice and accountability we see um, in the death of Freddie Gray, um, as well as the death and victimization of countless others here inside of Baltimore. Right. I mean, we're just hearing about Freddie Gray um, and... It's interesting because people are criticizing the property destruction, and I've actually read some interesting critiques from different people saying that it's because of things like these actions that we even hear about people like Freddie Gray. It's because of these actions that we heard about Ferguson or that we actually had change in Ferguson. Um, whether or not you think, well, I'd love to know your thoughts on that, but also what are the concrete things that the government, um, the of, of Baltimore can do and that what the concrete things that you are demanding? Yes, um, so first to the first um, comment, um, I think that that person is dead on in terms of um, these uh, look at these are the times when all eyes become on um, on a central or key location. Um, and so I think that they're absolutely right and I want folks to make sure that we get this narrative right. That this um, that what's happening in Baltimore was a long time coming mm-hmm. in the past um, in the past uh, five years, five or ten years, one of those numbers, we have had over twelve um, or over twelve people uh, be killed um, by unarmed people, predominantly men, unarmed black men be killed by the police 
of the Department of Baltimore City Police Department um, here inside of Baltimore, as well as over 100 of folks have been victimized, um, and the city has paid over $6 million in police brutality case settlement here. Right, so I want folks to make sure that we get the narrative right, that this has been a long time coming. And I would even ask folks the question um, that, uh, what do you do when you do everything right? Because this past General Assembly, we introduced 17 bills that would um, create legislation to create more accountability um, and address the structural issues that allow police brutality to happen. And so folks always, um, always are talking about the property damage that's going on here inside of Baltimore. But then I ask folks, what do you do in those senses when you have done it right and right. you've got it right and all and all of that has failed, our democracy right. system has failed that. Right, right? Um, there were two weeks of nonviolent protests, right? People like to pretend that this just came out of right. the blue as if the first thing that was tried was, oh, this happened, let's, let's go destroy some property. Exactly. Right, and so I would caution folks to think about that because there hasn't been a movement anywhere inside this country, and even the world that hasn't um, had any type of prophecy damage happen. Right. Um, the, because what we found out is that the power system is fine with ignoring the voices of oppressed people, and whenever you have the voices of oppressed people ignored for a long period of time, when they have followed the proper process you're going to receive pushback until their voices are elevated. Right. So just want to make sure that we get that narrative right. Um, in terms of your question around what the city of Baltimore can do and what the government, um, the state government can do, one of the biggest things that they can do is just um, tell the state's attorney here, the city state's attorney, Marlon Mosby, to indict the police officers involved in the tragic death of Freddie Brown. That's one of the first things that they can do. The second thing that the federal um, government could do, which is Obama and the Department of Justice, is um, activate, and this is something that they haven't done in probably decades, activate the Department of Justice criminal, um, their criminal powers, um, their subpoena powers, in order to shut down the Baltimore City Police Department and occupy it for the time being mm -hmm. until the structural change happens. Because not a lot of people know that the Department of Justice has that power and authority to do so whenever folks are under, operating under the cover of law. So whenever you have folks that are upholding the law of free and law, like lawmakers, politicians, local governments, as well as police departments, they're operating under the cover of law because they um, enforce the law and make the law and different things like that. And so the Department of Justice has the authority to shut down any um, any government official or police department. Um, don't quote me on the government official part, but any police department, I mean, justice system inside of this country that operates under the cover of law that is corrupt and violating our folks' civil and human um, and constitutional rights. So the Department of Justice and Obama um, and new Attorney General Nevada Lynch and previous Attorney General Eric Holder can charge the Department of Justice with activating that subpoena power and that criminal power to shut down the Baltimore City Police Department until we get this thing right and create structural changes. And then finally, um, the last thing that the local and city government can do on that, and it's just called for a special session, pass this 
17 pieces of legislation that we introduced without changing anything because the issue is that when bills get watered down, you see band-aid solutions take place and you see the same issue reoccurring over and over again. So the city, the governor, Governor Hogan, the mayor, um, Blake, as well as state and local officials and leaders can simply call for a special session and get these 17 pieces of legislation passed without shift-shaking it, without changing the pieces of legislation, and by making sure that they have um, enough votes and that everybody's going to want to put it, that they don't take a long time to be in this issue. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. And can you tell us how people can find you online and your organizations online? Sure. So you can um, find uh, the coalition. is called Baltimore um, United for um, Baltimore United for Change Coalition. We have a website, www.bmoreunited.org, if I'm not mistaken. And then also if folks want to find me, uh, they can go to my Facebook page. It's Trey Murphy. I'm Trey T-R-E, Murphy, M-U-R-P-H-Y, and they can find me that way. My phone number is 410-637-9795. We also have a Facebook page called Baltimore Baltimore United for Change Coalition. So folks can find us that way. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Trey. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate having you on. This is the morning show on radio station WBAI 99.5. FM and WBAI.org, and we encourage you to visit the website WBAI.org. We're streaming 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Katie Halper and Michael G. Haskins in studio, 36 minutes past the hour of 6 o'clock. We're joined now on the line uh, by Jeff Mays, reporter and producer for DNA Info, covering uh, politics, and you formerly covered exclusively uh, Harlem, previously reporter for the Star Ledger of New Jersey. Good morning, Jeff. How are you? Hey, good morning, Michael. All right. Uh, Katie and I are in studio this morning. We're happy to have you joining us. And I just want to say that, you know, having you and Harry uh, Jared Murphy, who's coming up after you, and some of our media partners who join us, uh, Milton Alamadi, Black Star News, uh, as um, uh, well as Bob Henley on, on Monday. These are some of our, our media partners who help shape the show, talk about things that are going on in the city, uh, regionally, and nationally, regionally. Uh, thank you, Katie, for that excellent, excellent presentation this morning by Trey Murphy. So, Jeff, uh, tell us uh, a little bit of, of, about what you have been focusing on over the past couple of days. I know you have a piece on uh, uh, Governor Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo said he would uh, issue an executive order appointing a special prosecutor to investigate, uh, here we go again, police killings here in the state of New York if the legislature fails to approve uh, approve his plan to create an independent monitor. Um, so uh, flesh this out for us. Yeah, I mean, I think this uh, this uh, is especially t- timely given what's happening in, in Baltimore. Um, but back in January, uh, Governor Cuomo uh, announced plans to introduce uh, an independent monitor like a retired judge that will review police cases uh, where an unarmed civilian is killed and the case is not presented to a grand jury. And this, of course, came in light of the Eric Garner decision uh, where, you know, Eric Garner was... Uh, killed on Staten Island after this interaction with police, and of course they uh, presented this case to a grand jury, 
regarding the use of a chokehold and uh, no charges were brought against the officer. So in response to that, uh, this was Governor Cuomo's plan, um, and it really has not progressed at all. There's been no progress on it. Um, it's, it's unclear if the legislature is actually going to act on this. So on Monday, uh, you know, family members of people who have been uh, killed by police, uh, we're talking about people like uh, Valerie Bell, who's the mother of Sean Bell, uh, Gwen Carr, who, was, uh, who is Eric Garner's mother, um, and Constance Malcolm, who is uh, Ramali Graham's mother, uh, who was killed in the Bronx in 2012. Um, they uh, went to Albany, demanded a, a, a meeting with uh, the governor. Um, at first, that wasn't going to happen, but they, they stayed the press conference outside of his office, mm. and uh, suddenly a time opened up for a meeting. <laughs> um, so they met with him, uh, you know, made their lists of uh, demands in terms of getting a special prosecutor. And uh, this is the leverage uh, he's using um, to try to force the legislature to act on his plan. Mm-hmm. So the legislature is uh, a bit reluctant. It's caught up in committee. Right. I think the plan right now, I think it's still in the discussion phase. Uh, I talked to uh, Speaker uh, Hastie's uh, office, um, and they said they remain uh, committed to reviewing the plan uh, but definitely no firm commitments um, as of yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, so that's on, on that front, uh, very interesting. Uh, there's something else that the governor is involved in, the governor's state of New York. He had just added, this is not anything that you have been covering necessarily, but he uh, an, had announced a uh, blueprint to end the AIDS epidemic, um, AIDS epidemic by 2020, and it had some interesting uh, 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 points in there that uh, perhaps we can talk about at another time. But also, uh, Jeff Mays, you uh, had uh, a piece on, uh, let's see, uh, Hillary Clinton and the uh, criminal justice system. She uh, made some references in a speech yesterday. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, as I said, the events in, in Baltimore yeah. are forcing a lot of the uh, declared candidates to address this issue. And so um, Hillary Clinton, uh, she was at Columbia University yesterday. Uh, she was at a, a leadership and public policy forum that's named after uh, David Dinkins, the uh, first black mayor in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was basically her first major public policy speech. Um, and she uh, dedicated it to criminal justice uh, uh, reform. Um, so, you know, she came out, she talked about how uh, Eric Garner was choked to death. Uh, she talked about the um, uh, Freddie Gray situation um, in Baltimore, and she said, you know, yet again, uh, you know, the, the family of a young black man is grieving a life cut short, and yet again the streets are marred by uh, violence. Um, and she also talked about several issues um, that activists have been raising about our criminal justice system, such as uh, the mass incarceration of um, African-American men um, the fact that, you know, black men are more likely to uh, serve longer prison sentences for the same crimes as, uh, as white men. Um, and also talked about how, you know, the criminal justice system has really become uh, the new um, mental institutions um, in our country mm-hmm. uh, and how we need to treat mm-hmm. that problem um, in order to uh, reduce the amount of incarceration. Um, so it was really um, a speech uh, that many uh, people kind of saw 
as a repudiation of some of the uh, policies uh, that her husband right. did when he was president. Um, and, uh, and it's going to be her line going forward in terms of uh, criminal justice. Hmm. Um, anything specific? Did she outline any specific points, or it was just, you know, just as you say, uh, a kind of uh, a speech that she was giving uh, on the stump, as it were? No, she, I think she laid out uh, some items. Uh, one of the things she called for was uh, police body cameras for every police department in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, she talked about the sort of, uh, you know, and that's been a, that's something that's happening in New York. That's right. a, there's a trial going on in, t- in terms of um, police body cameras. Because, as you know, a lot of these incidents is, um, you know, Walter Scott and, and Freddie Gray and uh, Eric Garner, there, there happens to be someone around who is recording video, who is brave enough to record the video. But with police body cameras, that it would, you know, you hopefully end that solution because every interaction between police um, and the public would be uh, on record mm-hmm. and it would be recorded. And, and that was her point was that, you know, you would end a lot of these problems. Um, it would protect both police and um, citizens um, in, in case anything happens. Um, so that was uh, one big call for her. Uh, she talked about... Uh, the uh, demilitarization of police departments um, around the country. Um, As has been reported, uh, a lot of police uh, departments are getting a lot of uh, military-grade equipment, uh, using it out in policing. And and Hillary Clinton said, uh, you know, these, quote, weapons of war really have no place on uh, American streets. Mm -hmm. Uh, So she called for an end to that. Um, She also talked about uh, the need for more community policing, for um, police to be more in touch in the community. And in, a, in an overarching sense, she talked about income inequality, um, the need for better jobs, and, and to end uh, some of the reasons that people uh, actually get caught up in the criminal justice system in the first place. We're speaking with Jeff Mays. Jeff Mays is a reporter for DNA Info covering politics. And Jeff, as we uh, wrap up this morning, you have an ongoing uh, piece that you've been working on some time about uh, the the gangs uh, in uh, Rikers Island. Just touch on that bef- uh, just for a moment as we close. Sure, yeah. I've been uh, been following the story about uh, this anti-violence uh, effort. It's really the city's um, effort to stop um, shootings in some of um, the neighborhoods in the city that have not seen the the sort of safety drops, uh, I mean the sort of um, decreases in crime that the entire city has seen. So, you know, these are neighborhoods in Brooklyn and and Upper Manhattan. Uh, And what's been happening is that there's been some problems at this uh, anti-violence program in Harlem called Harlem Snug. It's run by the Mission Society, which is a, you know, 200-year-old social services agency. There's been allegations that active gang members have been involved in the program, um, you know, allegations of uh, domestic abuse against the supervisor uh, there. And uh, what has happened is the Manhattan DA um, is now investigating, uh, you know, these sort of allegations. Um, and this program is important because it's the model that Mayor de Blasio and the city council are using to end uh, this sort of stubborn gun violence. And this week, finally, the Mission Society said that they are going to, uh, you know, re-interview all of their employees. They're going to... Um, adopt a tougher process to try to make sure that uh, people involved in this sort of work or have left that gang lifestyle behind. Um, it's kind of hard to do this work if you're, if you're on both sides of the fence. Uh, it's really supposed to be people who have uh, denounced that lifestyle 
and who have moved on and who are looking to um, you know, help pull others out of that lifestyle. So this is a big move uh, for the Mission Society kind of um, uh, coming in and saying that they need to uh, re-interview all of their employees, that they're going to strengthen their initial interview process um, with community members, law enforcement members, uh, to make sure um, that these uh, people who are out there uh, working to end this sort of gang violence are not themselves involved in gang violence. Well, Jeff Mays, how can people follow you at the DNA Info and elsewhere? Absolutely. Um, the website, dnainfo.com. Um, as I always say, great neighborhood coverage. Uh, we cover uh, pretty much every neighborhood in the city. You can go, you can sign up for a newsletter for your specific neighborhood, and we also have breaking news alerts. So it's just an excellent um, site uh, that covers the neighborhood like no one else. Uh, as for me, you can find me on Twitter, at Jeff C. Mays, and you can follow me there for all the updates and developments in the politics in our city. Excellent, Jeff. We'll speak to you very, very soon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, guys. This is WBAI in New York, the morning show with Katie Halper and Michael G. Haskins. We'll be back in just a moment with Jared Murphy of City Limits. I'm on the side of the workers, the teachers, the nurse ladies, on the streets of brown mommies, raising now brown babies. Friday, May 1st, celebrate May Day over WBAI. 2 to 6 p.m., we'll build bridges between the workers of the world. You'll hear from the fight for $15 and a union, a social movement sweeping the country. Learn from the militant insurgent labor activists in South Africa and attend protests supporting the workers of Bangladesh. From May Day events in Union Square and at Walmart owner Alice Walton's New York townhouse to South Carolina and San Francisco, with Black Lives Matters will rally for racial and economic justice. There'll be lots of analysis of the state of the working class capped off by the music and the odd expressions from the soul of the working class. Workers of the World Unite, May 1st, May Day, 2 to 6 p.m. With Mimi Rosenberg and Ken Nash, we build bridges. And speaking of uh, building bridges, the program Building Bridges can be heard Mondays at 7 p.m. However, you just heard the uh, promo for the May Day special that'll be taking place tomorrow on radio station WBAI 99.5 FM, 99.5 FM, and of course, WBAI.org on the web. We are now joined by the editor, the executive editor and publisher of City Limits, Jared Murphy. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I am fine. Much, much better. Thank you so much. Um, so, <clears throat> Jared, uh, let's start out. There's a number of things uh, that you've written about that are on the site, uh, City Limits. And uh, we want to direct people there, of course. Uh, but uh, one of the uh, headline pieces is a story about uh, labor violations on affordable housing sites. I found that a very, very interesting site. Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, that is a long-standing tension uh, that has, you know, been sort of an internal debate to the affordable housing community for a number of years, and. The issue has typically been whether or not it was right for the city to build the vast majority of its affordable housing using non-union non -union labor. Uh, and obviously the debate has generally revolved around the math. You know, is it possible to, given a certain finite number of, of city dollars and capital dollars, 
uh, and given the fact that union labor, because it pays people decent wages, tends to cost more, uh, what does it mean if you, you know, insist that labor be used? Does it mean you make fewer affordable apartments? Does it mean that you make them more expensive so they serve slightly higher income groups? You know, what are the consequences of that? So that debate has been swirling for a while, but it's definitely coming to a head, I think, because you have a mayor who is both promising to build and preserve a huge amount of affordable housing in Mayor de Blasio, and also the same mayor is, uh, you know, a friend of unions and generally seen to be progressive. And so he has promised that uh, one of the benefits of the housing program he's proposed is the creation of lots and lots of really good construction jobs. And so I think people in the labor movement are now kind of active trying to see if that's actually going to be the case. And so there was a city council hearing last week where council members heard from people who had been working on affordable housing sites and were claiming that they had been stiffed of wages, that whenever they tried to mount some publicity or a legal challenge against the company, they would simply change their name or set up a separate LLC and be able to get more work. And what was interesting was to kind of learn about the way the financing works, that the city um, spends a lot on affordable housing and is going to spend a lot more, but it doesn't pay for the building of the housing directly. It, it hires a sponsor who will own the affordable housing site, and that sponsor is responsible for hiring a general contractor, and the contractor hires subcontractors. And it's at that lower level of contracting mm. that most of these violations occur. Right. And so there's some question about you know, whether the uh, safeguards and whether the monitoring and oversight that's in place is sufficient to deal with the fact that on any affordable housing site, you're going to have several different companies. Um, and there's even, at this point, kind of limited responsibility on the part of contractors and sponsors to report exactly who they're working with. So uh, I think the council members were pretty upset to hear about the degree to which this was not monitored, or at least where HPD felt it didn't have the ability to monitor. And I'd expect that there's going to be some, some action on that front soon, although I will mention just to loop around to the previous point mm-hmm. that people are going to be reluctant, I think, to do too much that um, you know restricts the ability to create a lot of affordable housing to make it affordable to, to truly low-income people. So there is there is a tension inherent in the discussion. Mm, that's uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. Just as an aside, Jared, um, the you know we hear about uh, city administrative agencies. We hear about the police department all the time, the fire department all the time, sanitation and others. Uh, but this this uh, the housing and buildings, you've been following these these issues and these agencies for a long time, but that's a really a significant agency within the city of New York. Oh, it is, totally. I mean, the HPD is both responsible for creating affordable housing as well as enforcing the city's housing and maintenance code. So, you know, if your heat goes out, your hot water, hot water conks out, HPD is in charge of that, too, and you know, monitoring dangerous conditions in buildings if they affect tenants. Mm. So, yes, it is It is certainly a lower-profile agency and a little less prestigious than some of the other ones you mentioned, but in terms of particularly for low-income neighborhoods, it's it's really a, a pretty critical one. Mm-hmm. I'm speaking with uh, Jared Murphy of uh, City Limits, the executive editor and publisher of City Limits. Uh, Jared, you've also... Uh, covered the uh, early stages uh, of uh, uh, posturing in the legislature, the New York State legislature, about rent regulations. Um, uh, Talk a little bit about that uh, before we move on. 
So as folks who've listened to this before or read City Limits or other sources will know, rent regulations affecting nearly a million apartments in New York uh, expire in mid-June. And for months now, people have been anticipating this battle um, because tenant advocates see, uh, argue that unless the system is renewed and reformed, uh, it effectively will stop uh, existing in a few years because apartments are, are leaving it as they get priced out of the system. Uh, and there are a bunch of other reforms they want, too. And, you know, this was a factor in discussions around the election in the fall of 2014 and the attempt by Democrats, unsuccessful attempt by Democrats, to take back the state Senate. And during the budget, this was sort of the uh, big fight that was looming in the distance, and now the budget is done. And so this this particular battle over whether to renew rent regs and whether to uh, reform them, as well as some attached uh, kind of linked discussions about tax breaks like 421A and others, uh, that's really probably the biggest thing on the legislators, legislature's agenda for the next several months. And we're starting to see people kind of lining up to take sides. And tenant advocates are hopeful that the assembly, which has traditionally been most tenant-friendly, is going to take a very strong position because basically everyone knows that it's going to come down to the deal that's cut when the governor, the state senate majority leader and the uh, House Speaker, the Assembly Speaker, are in a room uh, sometime in June. Hmm. And so the thinking is that if you get the Assembly to take a very strong position, uh, that it would be that much harder for the Speaker to, to give too much away. And so the proposal that's starting to get some traction would end vacancy decontrol, which is the mechanism by which apartments leave rent stabilization when their rent hits a certain threshold. And it would also recapture thousands of apartments that have left the system under that mechanism over the past couple decades, which is probably its most uh, controversial and ambitious uh, element. And tenant advocates were a little alarmed, I think, last week that relatively few Assembly Democrats had signed on to the bill as sponsors because, you know, this is all about kind of posturing and, um, you know, demonstrating strength. And it's starting to acquire more sponsors, but as far as I know, it's still not got the support of most of the Democratic caucus in the Assembly. So, you know, I think tenant advocates are pushing very hard. It obviously does feel still a little early because it's only late April, uh, but this is going to be the focus of much of their effort in terms of personal lobbying and marches and trips to Albany by advocates. And also, I would say, by, you know, the Rent Stabilization Association and landlord groups who have an argument to make, too, that, you know, vacancy decontrol is a necessary mechanism to uh, allow... Um, uh, landlords to extract operating expenses and profits out of buildings. So they certainly will be active and, and have been active in Albany as well. Mm -hmm. Well, Jared, uh, let's just, as we uh, wrap up, we're coming to the top of the hour, just let's step outside of uh, New York City for a moment and just uh, focus just uh, for a bit on uh, uh, Baltimore. You haven't written anything per se about the Baltimore yet, but just let's reference because uh, the, the uh, Wall Street Journal editorial blaming the unrest on the uh, de Blasio type policies. I had to go uh, read that last night and, uh, you know, my jaw was dropped open. Let's just, just touch on that for a moment as we wrap yeah, it's, up. You know, it's like it's the greatest hits album that you, you never have to put away. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. 2015, and, you know, the argument is still the same one that was made about New York City in the 1970s um, and other cities in the 80s and 90s, and that is that, you know, this unrest reflects the failure of progressive democratic policies. Uh, you know, it's about welfare. Um, it's about unions. It's about a tolerance for, um, 
for civil disobedience or for for um, for violations uh, and incivility. Uh, and it's just you know it's it's kind of ridiculous that um, you know poverty that is clearly the, the result of a sort of systemic issues, um, mainly the result of conservative policies, and that unrest and upset at a police department that is imposing and has been imposing uh, you know conservative approaches to law enforcement that that is somehow the evidence in an indictment of Bill De Blasio. Um, it's it's, like it's class warfare. He's famous for launching, yeah, according to Bloomberg, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, it's just, it's, a, it's an incredible act of jujitsu by the right to suggest that what we're seeing in Baltimore, and I think partly too, you know, you never want to look at scenes on CNN and assume it says anything too much about the city because riots um, are kind of a funny thing and can involve a relatively small portion of the population. But the fact that that is an indictment of De Blasio progressivism is is just kind of bizarre. Um, but it is interesting to know. That uh, whether he likes this particular form of it or not, you know, De Blasio clearly is getting that national stature as a, a symbol, an emblem of a particular approach to governing cities. Uh, obviously, not one that the Wall Street Journal shares. Absolutely. Well, uh, Jerry Murphy, we're out of time this morning uh, for our edition. Uh, we look to have you back next week at this time. Although, you know, with our uh, fundraising responsibilities, we're not sure how that's going to play out, but I certainly will be in touch. Jared Murphy, the executive editor and publisher of City Limits, citylimits.org. And how can people follow you, Jared? Um, Jared Murphy at Twitter. Jared Murphy at Twitter. Again, thank you so much for taking time and sharing with us this morning. Thank you. Have a good one. All right. Katie Halper, we're right up on top of 7 o'clock. The um, next hour is ahead. We have another hour ahead. Great. All right, How can so people find you online? Who, me? Yeah. Me? Oh, uh, at Michael G. Haskins. Uh, I do have time from time to time during the day uh, to post, so you can find me there. Great. And what about you? At KT Helps, letter K, letter T, H A L P S. All right. I'm going to follow you now. I can't All right. And now. you're busy doing things right now as we speak. I'm tweeting away. As we speak. It's 7 o'clock here in New York City on the morning show. Katie Halper and Michael G. Haskins, thank you so much for tuning in. WBAI 99.5 FM and, of course, WBAI.org. We're streaming, by the way, at WBAI.org uh, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, so you can connect with us anywhere. As long as you have that computer, 
WBAI.org. It's a little bit cooler today than it was yesterday. It's uh, 48 degrees and mostly cloudy. It's going to be uh, kind of cloudy and overcast for most of the day, but it's going up to a high of 61 degrees. My name is Michael G. Haskins, and I'm joined in studio by Katie Halper. Good morning, Katie. Good morning. All right. Uh, in this second hour, we're going to be speaking uh, with Doug Rawlings. Doug Rawlings is a uh, Vietnam veteran, and uh, he wrote a piece. He wrote a piece in uh, this month's Independent. Don't thank me for my service. And I encourage you to look at that, uh, given the uh, relevance of this particular day, April 30th has with Vietnam and this country as well. Uh, a little bit later on, toward the bottom of the hour, we'll be uh, looking at the Trans-Pacific Pipeline, the TPP. And so we'll have Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown uh, joining us, uh, who has been at the forefront of the fight against TPP. So that's coming up. And, uh, Katie, we have some uh, some other guests that will be joining us in studio, in fact. Yes, Justin Williams, the very funny, very smart political comedian. He'll be talking about the news with us and all the great explanations that the right wing has come out for what's behind the protests in Baltimore. All right. So Very we'll creative. Be, all right. We're looking for that. Definitely creative. We love creative here <laughs> on this station. And speaking of which, Katie, you are quite a creative person. You are a stand-up comedian. And so maybe we could talk about some of that. Well, you know what? We'll save that to when, you know, great. your guest comes into Perfect. the studio. All right. All that and more on this morning's show here at 7. 7.03 on a Thursday morning, the 30th of April, 2015. First things first, news with Linda Perry. Housing is a human right. Fight, fight, fight. New York City public advocate Tish James said the city is experiencing a homeless crisis not seen since the Great Depression. Nearly 60,000 New Yorkers tonight will be sleeping in our shelters, including 25,000 children. And approximately 88% of homeless residents are either African American or Latino. And thousands of unsheltered individuals sleep on our subway systems and on our streets and in our public spaces each and every night. And so that number is significantly higher. From 1990 through 2005, the city helped more than 53,000 homeless families. This includes 100,000 children. It moved them to long-term permanent housing using federal housing programs. Research showed that the vast majority remained in stable housing. They didn't return to homelessness. People like Robin Tucker, who says he came from the dungeons of being homeless. The drug scene, living in Central Park. And I got lucky where I did get the help to get pushed through the mill. But I ended up with my one-bedroom apartment. And, you know, I am here because I'm fighting to basically keep it, to show you the reward of having a place coming from a dungeon how you can just pull out of it get healthy it, it is a guarantee when you have a place so we have the answers we have the tools but in 2005 mayor bloomberg cut off homeless families and individuals from federal housing programs 
one of the major causes of soaring New York City homelessness over the past decade, which remains with us to this day. Tish James says our housing stock is being flooded with luxury rentals and quote-unquote affordable housing, which isn't really affordable to regular New Yorkers. A lot of these condominiums they're building, you know what I mean, and just for um, the rich folks, and not for the poor people. We've been here, you know, we have nowhere to go. Leslie Williams is homeless. He sees rich people taking up many of the spaces. It's just sad, sad to see that happening. You know, and they say that they don't have enough housing, but yet they do have it. They need to start putting the poor people back in, the, in housing. We need, we need space. We need help. Williams says New York City isn't supposed to be a city for only the rich, but that's what it seems like. We all build this city. We all been here, you know, so just hope that, you know, I mean, things will change. You know. Hope this new government, this, the new mayor will do something better for the housing of the poor people in New York. Councilmember Brad Landers says he's happy de Blasio has put 750 units for homeless back on the table. But it's still not anywhere near all we can do. Uh, so I'm proud that the council and its budget response is joining Homeless for Every New Yorkers and calling for 2,500 units to be put on the table, uh, made available to homeless families. That's still not even half of the annual NYCHA vacancies, but the difference it'll make to homeless families, many of whom are working, um, to be able to move into safe decent, permanent, affordable housing is just essential. Housing is a human right. In other news, Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton delivered a keynote address at Columbia University. She spoke about the criminal justice system and Black Lives Matter issues. From Ferguson to Staten Island to Baltimore, the patterns have become unmistakable and undeniable. Clinton went on to say that every police department in the country should have body cameras. Can I get a Black Lives Matter? One, two, three. Black Lives Matter! Black Lives Matter! There was a Black Lives Matter rally at Union Square in Manhattan last night to protest the death of Freddie Gray, the Baltimore man who died in police custody. The Stop Murder by Police poster, 40 photos of people of color killed by police, stood high above the crowd. Feelings were pretty raw, young black women speaking out. Sabat Jordan with the Black Youth Project says she's exhausted by what she hears about Baltimore. I'm tired of hearing the same story over and over. I'm tired of feeling the same pain. I'm tired of looking at people who look like they could be my brother or my boyfriend or my uncle or my son. And I'm, I'm, I'm exhausted of it. And on the other hand, I'm proud. I'm proud that we are as a country saying enough is enough. I'm proud that we are saying we are no longer going to sit at home, sit on our asses, sit in our offices and watch as a whole race of people is terrorized and brutalized by the people who are supposed to be protecting and serving us. I'm proud to see everybody out here who is standing up for justice. Please be advised that pedestrians are not permitted to walk in the street or roadway. Thousands of people hit the streets in Baltimore and several other cities here in New York. More than 60 people were arrested. Linda Perry, WVAI News, New York. If you unlawfully obstruct pedestrian traffic or walk in the street or roadway, you may be placed under arrest and charged with disorderly conduct, a violation of New York State penal law. This is the
taking us back quite a ways back into the uh, 1960s mm. rising sun, Katie. That goes back a long, long way. Yes, I was negative something years old. <laughs> But I feel, I feel like I was alive then. Yeah, yeah, My old soul. Yeah, yeah, your old soul. Katie Halper here in studio. Uh, Michael G. Haskins. This is the morning show on commercial free WBAI. 40 years ago, Vietnam, 40 years after the fall of Saigon. Uh, the country, the Vietnam, the uh, country of Vietnam is uh, celebrating the end of the war. And, uh, but it's still, uh, reconcilia reconciliation is still fought and is still fought with a lot of, uh, uh, peril and uncertainty looking forward. Well, I'm joined on the line uh, this morning by, uh, Doug Rawlings. Doug Rawlings, uh, wrote a piece in, uh, this month's edition of The Independent, that's I-N-D-Y. Pendant, the independent and um, he joins us on, on the line this morning uh, Doug Rawlins uh, wrote this piece titled don't thank me for my service Doug good morning good morning thank you for joining us on the line uh, this morning on on WBAI um, when you look back before we talk about the piece per se when you look back on uh, Vietnam and your service, what uh, what are your impressions or what are your thoughts here this this morning? Well, first of all, you put me at an unfair advantage because I'm listening to the House of the Rising, song, <laughs> one yes. of my favorite songs. Yes. And then there's, of course, we got to get out of this place, which yeah. is another favorite song of ours back then. Mm -hmm. by the animals. Um, you know, it's a it's a for me, of course. My experience in Vietnam was 45 years ago, 46 years ago, and it's, uh, you know, still in some ways fresh in my mind. In other ways, it's something that I, like. but uh, um, Doug. Yes. Yeah, it seems like I am having uh, we're having a little bit of trouble with our line. Uh, go ahead. If, if we have any f further difficulty, I'll have to call you back. But I, I don't want to, uh, you know, interfere, or I want to okay. make sure that we hear you. Go ahead. Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I probably had the phone far too far away. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, well, I, I guess one of the things I want to point out is that those of us who served in Vietnam, uh, and there, you know, almost three million Americans, and, and by the way. Um, you mentioned the, the 40 an year anniversary. Um, the Vietnamese people called it the American War mm. in Vietnam because, of course, they fought wars against the French, the Japanese, mm. the Chinese, mm -hmm. whatever. Right. The history goes back, right. you know, hundreds of years of their resistance to imperial invasion. So, uh, as someone who was involved in that, as you know, directly involved in that, as a as a relatively young man, you know, I, I have. Uh, um, I have great remorse about that experience, and um, those of us who and veterans for peace who are putting together what we call our full disclosure movement, which is resisting the Pentagon's revision of the history of that war, revisit our time in in, in Vietnam with some degree of reluctance, but also with some degree of of uh, necessity. Um, we just can't have the Pentagon telling the history of that war without bringing in the experience of the Vietnamese and Laotian and Cambodian uh, people who also suffered 
during that war mm. greatly. Right. You, you know, uh, uh, Doug, as, as a veteran myself, we think about uh, looking back on that, that period of time and, uh, you know, service people were stretched all over the world, all over the globe. I happened to be in, in South Korea around that time. Uh, what what uh, regrets do you, you, you have? Uh, what remorse do you have? What uh, let, Let's be specific and tell people uh, what those are. Well, I was with an artillery unit in the uh, Central Highlands of Vietnam from July of 1969 to August of 1970. And during that particular period of time, we were in supporting the 173rd Airborne. And during that particular period of time, um, we rained down artillery shells on the innocent people. Um, and, and, and perhaps there were supposedly some combatants, but the, uh, that, I don't even consider that. But I consider what we used to call, uh, as, as a matter of fact, harassment and interdiction rounds, where we just send out rounds um, sporadically, uh, not even called for any kind of a mission at all, just to sort of disrupt things, mm. if you will. And over the period of time of you know, the last 45 years, I have many moments where I, I could reflect upon where those shells landed and what they did to people who were trying to go about their daily lives the Vietnamese people, and that, that causes me great anguish mm. to think that I was part of that um, machine that did that. What was your... Um, hi, it's Katie Halper on the line. Thanks so much for talking to us today. Sure. Um, I was wondering what your kind of aha moment was, how you kind of changed your opinion about what you were doing. Well, you know, there are, I, there are many moments, but I, I would, you know, if I could think of something in particular, I think the... the um, connection between looking into the eyes of the Vietnamese children that mm. I saw mm. uh, and then looking into the eyes of my say two-year-old daughter mm. uh, uh, playing in the you know in the grass with me and th just reflecting back on the difference between the way they looked at me um, was an aha moment mm. for me um, and this was in the, in the for me um, in the mid 70s, I got out of Vietnam in 1970, and you know, and my first daughter was born. In, my daughter was born in 1974. So um, that period of time when I started really looking at children, um, I think it was as it close to an aha moment, I suppose, as I can identify at this point. Right, and 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 for me, the you know the same things are being played out now, and some of our young people are being placed in harm's way all around the globe and are are facing some of the same things that you and others had to face or not knowing who who was who in the various places around the world but when you come to it when you stop to think about it and you only get this uh, this understanding as a veteran after you've left the theater of, of 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 conflict if you will that these people the vietnamese people or the iraqi people or the pakistani people name the folks uh they love their children too right you know can you can you hear me now I'm yeah 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 go ahead yeah, uh, I'm, I'm currently working on a, uh, um, I work at our, our Veterans Administration Hospital here in Maine, and I work on the psychiatric ward, and I'm leading um, veterans there through uh, creative writing exercises and stuff and trying to write poetry about their experiences. And um, that very topic came up, and there was maybe a dozen guys sitting around 
the room this particular session, and, and I'd say half of them were Iraq or Afghan war veterans. And the whole topic of children sort of dominated our conversation mm. for about 45 minutes sure. and, uh, along exactly those lines that you just mentioned, you know. Yeah. Um, the realization of what we what we had done, what we were doing, mm-hmm. and these aren't and these not, these these men who were in this particular session were not necessarily of the same uh, political persuasion as I I am, mm-hmm. but it yeah. still it sort of resonated with us that that whole realization of what we had done, and then and then our remorse and and, and for some of us and say myself and veterans for peace, I've, I've dedicated you know forty years of our lives. Of, good portion of it to sort of undo that if we could possibly undo it which we of course can't but i suppose we we, we try it we try our best what what do you i'm interested in hearing from both of you um i didn't know you were a veteran michael but um what advice do you have to people as as veterans in terms of how to talk about this issue in a way that doesn't alienate people who did serve or are actively serving because I know that's been kind of a problem often in time in terms of the framing of the issue in a way that doesn't kind of shame people into, um, you know, kind of a paralysis or resentment. That's a that's an excellent question. It is. It really loaded. is. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, you know, as you could well imagine, you know, since we formed Veterans of Peace in 1985, you know, and uh, uh, our goal is to abolish war and it's to do it and and, and do it nonviolently. So we've been in in confrontation with uh, veterans who don't feel the same way we do at first blush most of the time um you know we get you know we're involved in parades and actions and arrests and occupations and all that kind of stuff and we'll encounter veterans who uh, you know will immediately think that our organization is designed to sort of diss the you know the veteran uh, you know we can counter that fairly quickly by saying look we're veterans we understand what's going on here uh and what we try to do is create a non-judgmental um, you know, uh, environment, if you will, where we just say, you know, okay, you know, where were you, and how, you know, how, what was your service, like? and all that kind of stuff. And then in that conversation, we start, te- you know, touching on some, I think, some common ground, right? Um, and oftentimes, ironically, what we find are veterans who are pissed off at the government, right. not for the same reason we're pissed off at the government, but uh, you know, and that, so that gives us a sort of a way to talk, start talking about this, that, and everything else. Um, and usually, we come to some kind of resolution. You know that um, war itself is a, is a dreadful enterprise, no matter what, no matter yeah. what your political persuasion is. So, huh, Michael, yeah. you want to take yeah. on that question? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I, I do. Um, it's you. You just have to engage people where they are, actually, because you know. People who are not veterans or who are still serving, they're going to feel in their experiences is one way, as mine was and as I'm sure yours was, Doug. And um, when they uh, are, you know, just released from service, um, you know, they're they're trying to find their way back into society. And uh, they may not be so much interested in any of the things that you and I may be uh, wanting to talk about and, and children and so on. They may not even have children at that 
that point. Right. So yeah. there, you know, so there is there is that. Doug, I, I wanted to ask you before we run out of time here. My goodness, it always runs so quickly here on uh, on the morning show. The piece that you wrote in the Independent, and we encourage people to uh, look up the Independent and uh, find Doug's piece. Don't thank me for my service. Explain what that piece was about, and and the reaction. I saw some of the comments from a few people about that. Talk about the, the, the piece itself and then some of the reactions that you've received. Well, I was actually asked to write something um, about the full disclosure movement that we have going on um, in Veterans for Peace. Um, and if people are, are, in, are encouraged to, of course, um, uh, go to our website and find out more about that information. But um, part of that uh, uh, process is what we call our Memorial Day letter writing campaign where we're asking people of all persuasions no matter who they were or what they did during the Vietnam War to write a letter to the wall itself um, describing their feelings about the Vietnam War and the wall and whatnot. And then on Memorial Day uh, we are going to deliver those letters uh, to the wall in a service uh, very you know, a somber service not a demonstration at all. We're just going to put the letters at the foot of the wall to recognize all that so what in preparation for that i was actually in um dc on veterans day with a friend of mine from vietnam who i hadn't seen for quite a while and he wanted to go to the arlington cemetery and i we did and i went and went to the wall but he was wearing a cap that said you know vietnam veteran and people were approaching him and thanking him for his service and I'm standing there with him with a shirt on my Veterans for Peace shirt that has a quote from Eisenhower on it that says I hate all war hmm. as all of us should and hmm. people usually look at me you know askance if you will when they see that t-shirt and they don't want to even engage me but I'm next to this guy and this guy's saying hey this guy's a Vietnam veteran too you know and so then people would be thanking me for my service and I'd say well look you know and I and, and I try to get into some kind of uh, lengthy discussion but oftentimes I just can't I just say you know I just sort of nod my head but really what I want to say is that you, know, you have to ask us who we are serving yep. um, and why we were serving and, and I've come to the realization I was not serving the American people nor yep. was I serving the Vietnamese people I was probably serving some kind of imperial design or what who knows what okay but it's certainly the service that they think that they're thanking me for is not uh, at all what i should be thanked for right. i should be thanked for my service in the peace movement as much as i possibly can as little as that was so that's the sort of the beginning of that whole that whole notion of trying to somehow sort out um how we can respond to people who thank us for our service and i've come mm -hmm. to the realization that if i have the time I would tell people about the Vietnam War, and I would tell them some of the, break some of the, the, the uh, myths that have been sort of uh, promulgated by people who are interested in pushing these wars. Uh, namely, that, you know, let's, let's, let's look beyond us as Americans, okay? Most people would talk about how we lost our innocence in the Vietnam War and all that kind of stuff. And I like to point out to people, you know, the war was fun. Uh, oh my goodness, Doug! We're seeming like we're uh, losing you again. Oh, I'm Doug, sorry. There we go. There we go. You're we go. back with us now. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you would. You would. Ju you just uh, faded out when you were talking about uh, people are thinking that uh, America, uh, America losing, losing its, its innocence. Yeah. Right. I mean, people have to take into account the fact that the war was fought in a country populated by people of Vietnamese and Cambodians, Laotians, etc. Yeah. You know, who suffered great losses during that that war. And so it's not just about us. Yeah, it's about them too, and I, you know, if 
so when people say thank you for the service, I like to bring all of that in, into play and say, you know, I, I, I have to tell you that I, uh, I regret my, my so-called service in, in, that, in that war. Yeah, you know? and how do people react to that? Well, it depends. You know, yeah. some people just look at me like, what? You know, and sort of, they don't, don't get it. Some mm. people are really interested. I've had some an excellent conversations with people. And uh, I had a conversation with a young woman uh, in um, uh, Staples uh, the other day whose father is a Vietnam veteran. And she just, well, just was talking on and on and on about all he's suffered and all he's gone through and all that stuff. And how he would agree with me if he were there. So I get that kind of response. We also get response from people from, from people who are blindly supporting our, our wars and they turn their backs on us often mm. you know they won't even give me acknowledgement of, you know, of responding to me they just turn their back on me or flip me off or whatever mm. so it's a, it's a whole range of different different responses do you know my mom Nora Eisenberg who wrote the book uh, When You Come Home to Me no When You I, Come Home okay I don't she um she I know is active in uh uh with veterans for peace, but and she's a writer and an English professor, so it, it made me think of it. Uh, no, no but, I don't. Yeah, I I, sh I will introduce you guys. Uh, Nora Eisenberg, when you come home, and it's actually a, a not a f historical fiction. It's a novel about um, three generations of of soldiers, and it starts with the, it includes the Vietnam War and actually deals with Gulf War syndrome also. Wonderful. Yeah. So uh, just thought I'd. Yeah, do, do you know the? You guys know the work of? I think it's Helen Benedict. Yes. Yeah. 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 I just saw a play, a version of her play. Mm -hmm. Oh, great! Uh, about the women returning from Iraq, and it's, a, it's right. an amazing, amazing story. I think I met her. Wow. Yeah. Up. See, now that's a, a little known story that we have to get out there. You should. Well. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Trying, I think she lives in New York City. As a matter of yeah. fact, got to right. call her up. All right. Yeah. Well, we'll certainly and get call, and talk to Ann Jones too. Ann oh. Jones, the investigative reporter. Who's doing all of this amazing work with women? All right. Well, Doug, uh, Doug Rawlings. As we wrap up the piece again in the Independent, don't thank me for my service. You're part of Veterans for Peace. Let's give folks the coordinates and information to find out more about Veterans for Peace. Well, in our, this particular project, if people went to the the website uh, VietnamFullDisclosure.org, all one word, VietnamFullDisclosure.org. They would see our website about this particular thing, and if they wanted to find out more about Veterans for Peace, just go to our veteransforpeace.org site as well. All right. Well, Doug Rawlings, we really appreciate you joining us this morning and talking to us on this uh, 40th uh, anniversary of the fall of uh, Vietnam, the United States engagement uh, with Vietnam. Thank you so much, Doug. Oh, my honor. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate it. This is WBAI in New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org on the web. We'll be right back. In this dirty old part of the city Where the sun refused to shine People tell me there ain't no use in trying Now my girl, you're so young and pretty
specifically for Doug Rawlings and all of you, of course. It is 7.32 here on WBAI and we'll be joined in just a couple of minutes by Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown. He is uh, joining us, uh, working his way into his studio over there and uh, he'll be joining us in just a moment. Um, my name is Michael G. Haskins here in studio with Katie Halper and Katie, one of the other stories we didn't get a chance to uh, mention uh, during the opening of the show but one of the things that I saw, heard about uh, late last night, uh, David Wildstein, many of you know that name, is reportedly uh, to plead guilty in the George Washington uh, Bridge Probe, a former ally of Governor Chris Christie, who orchestrated the lane closures, reportedly will plead uh, guilty in, in federal court, I think, as early as tomorrow. Yes, and he, uh, of course, my favorite part of that story, I don't know if you remember, was when he, uh, Chris Christie talked about how he, they knew each other in high school and he wasn't even friends with him. So uh, that was a, a nice like uh, high school politics that, of course, is not at all surprising when it comes from Chris Christie because he acts like a big bully and he is a big bully um, and always manages to make things really personal. Um, but yes, David Wildstein... Um, is certainly an interesting character, an interesting fellow. Um, and I wonder how that's going to play in terms of uh, Chris Christie's viability as a political candidate. Um, Wildstein may be falling on his... Uh, he's, he's Unlike the other people, he's not going to, I don't think, fall on his sword for Christie, but I don't know how... He'll be able how much he'll be able to drag him down with him right well you know chris 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 christie uh will be more than likely be saying just shut up right and he'll also probably i'm trying to there's a there's an amazing exchange the daily show actually talked about it once where chris christie is just basically denying ever having been friends with david wildstein 
um, literally in high school. Um, it's not even a metaphor. It's it's literally taking it to a high school lesson, uh, high school level. Yeah, the, he. I think that's really. It's it's not funny, but it's, it's, it's kind of, maybe it, we can it, laugh instead bit. of cry. Yes, right? yeah, exactly yeah. right, exactly right. Doesn't know him. Only you know I. I I, I really didn't know him. I saw him in the hallways, right. maybe in the lunchroom, but I had not a, really. Yeah, I was too popular. Right. And David Wildstein is a very, ner he, in all fairness to him, he's a very hardworking guy. He, mm -hmm. he sued the school board over an election or something, like over a student election. Yeah. So he was a nerd, and Chris Christie, believe it or not, was a jock at the time. At the time. It is now 7.35, and you're tuned to WBAI at 99.5 on the FM dial. That's where you're tuned to specifically on the dial, 99.5 FM, and WBAI.org on the web. I'm Michael G. Haskins, in studio with Katie Halper. Last week, the U.S. Senate's Finance Committee approved fast-tracking the controversial trade deal known as the Trans-Pacific Partnership. The deal involves a dozen countries who control 40% of the world's trade and has been heavily criticized for the rush and secrecy surrounding its writing. I'm privileged to introduce our next guest, Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, who has been at the forefront of the fight against the TPP. Uh, Senator, good morning, and thank you so much for taking time out to join us today. Glad to be with you. Thank you. All right, so uh, along with other progressive members of the Senate, like Vermont's Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, you have been outspoken against this trade deal. What, what are your biggest concerns? It's the same story. The presidents of both parties over the last 20 years have promised, uh, made promises with trade deals that they push through Congress. They don't increase jobs. It never does. That they that wages will go up as a result. Uh, they never do. Uh, they we uh, these trade deals put us put us in a relationship with with our trading partners who don't follow the same rules in terms of labor and standards, health standards, currency manipulation. Uh, we also know from. Trans-Pacific Partnership that China, there's no provision in there to keep China from coming in the back door two, three, four, five years from now without a vote of Congress saying yes to it. And ultimately, it's a shift of power from from corporate from from democratically elected governments to corporations. Um, Philip Morris, for instance, has threatened to sue a number of countries um, if they pass public health anti-smoking protect our children laws. Uh, and sometimes these countries have backed down and not passed those laws as a result of that corporate intimidation. Other times um, they've actually gone to court to overturn, uh, uh, gone to a, a tribunal, not effect, not made up of a of a of a panel not from that country to overturn a law democratically attained in that country. So it's it's a huge shift of power to cor corporations to dumb down food safety, worker safety, public health standards. Yeah, even as you say that, I am extraordinarily uncomfortable at thinking about where we are uh, in, in this country. But, but nonetheless, after President Obama accused the, the opposition of spreading misinformation and being dishonest, you and Senator Warren sent a letter to the president urging him to finally disclose the treaty's text. Tell us about this, please. Yeah, I, um, I have seen parts of that text but the uh we don't we don't have full access to it in fact interestingly my staff which has security clearance can get can, can has more access to documents about iran sanctions or cia or department of defense documents 
than it does to the text of the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, however, uh, in hundreds of corporations, uh, CEOs and corporate lobbyists and lawyers and others for companies um, all over the country, some of the most some of the most no- notable countries in our in our companies in our country um, have been on the inside of this in so-called advisory panels, hundreds of them. So they, in essence, have had more access to this text than has. Um, than have congressional staff, and in some cases more than, than House and Senate members. So we just, if the president's going to say we're wrong about this, and I don't think this trade agreement's much different from, from what he was critical of in his OA campaign, the North American Free Trade Agreement, but if, if this is markedly different, um, his staff should explain it better and answer questions and not obfuscate, and he, they should open up the text to this. So not just members of Congress and staff can see it, but that the public can examine it. And then see what they think. That the public can examine it exactly. I mean, is this the first time this kind of thing has happened, where that you know Congress has been uh, restricted and and the staff has been restricted from uh, seeing these these uh, these important deals? Secrecy's always been too much a part of these, but this seems to be the extreme because so many people have asked to see it. In this case, some trade agreements have been less less important. This one. This trade agreement, uh, the TPA, the fast track, uh, will govern potentially 60% of the world's economy with these 12 countries that you mentioned, coupled with uh, the next agreement that would be uh, would be done under, would be negotiated under fast track called the uh, TTIP. It's that's that's the U.S. European Union agreement. So those, and then when you bring, if you bring China in the back door, it's it's I don't know, it's 70 or 80 percent of the world's economy. So um, this one, the stakes are higher in this one. Um, the digging in by the uh, U.S. trade rep seems seems um, greater in terms of their just resistance to um, answering questions and talking to us about what's in this and letting us actually see a very complicated trade agreement. They will say, "Well, you can't negotiate when you can't negotiate with your trading partners when when we um, when everybody gets to see the text and there'll be the pressure that way." But there's two answers. To that one is corporations in the U.S. already are mostly at the table putting pressure on already. And second, uh, nine of the 29 chapters of this trade agreement are actually finished, and, and most of the other 20 are very near to completion. So showing us the agreement now would, would not at all um, burden the negotiators or would not at all blow up the negotiations. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're generous with your time, uh, Senator, Senator Brown. I have a couple of other questions before you go. What role did uh, multinational companies play in writing the deal, and, and how can it potentially affect our own labor, environmental, and uh, consumer protection laws? Well, the, the trade, U.S. trade rep would say they played no role, mm. but there were 500 of some of uh, 500 plus of them, and a handful of labor people, too, to be fair, but the preponderance on most of these advisory panels were all industry or close to all industry. So they were they were whispering in the ear of our trade negotiators and looking at the text and saying how this would work or wouldn't work for them. But it, but it really is a shift of power to them. I'll give you a really quick example. The government of Australia passed a plain packaging tobacco law, particularly to keep cigarettes out of the hands of kids. Um, legislature there passed it. The Supreme Court of Australia passed it six, uh, upheld it six to one. Yet under the Hong Kong-Australia uh, trade agreement, uh, Philip Morris set up a uh, subsidiary in Hong Kong and then sued the government of Australia. The three people making the decision on whether this law should, this public health law should stand, 
Um, none of them are from Australia, is my understanding. And making a decision about an Australia democratic elected rule, that apply that to our own labor standards, environmental, food safety, all the things that we've fought for as progressives have fought for 100 years and for 100 years in this country um, to raise our living standards for everyone, safe drinking water, clean air, civil rights, women's rights, protections for the disabled, all these kinds of things that corporations can't overturn in our country, but can they use um, this so-called investor state dispute settlement, this provision in the law where corporations are allowed to sue governments of another country. Mm -hmm. And and why is this fast-tracking deal so worrisome to you and, and to uh, many of us? Well, it's worrisome for all those reasons. It's yeah. worrisome that it's lost jobs. It's yes. worrisome that China could get a get a backdoor entry into it it's worrisome because they don't play in this uh, by the same rules we do in mm -hmm. terms of currency and and wages and labor standards and, and, and dumping their waste their environmental rules uh, rules and and last it's the, the my maybe my biggest worry and maybe this is what this agreement's about more than anything else the core of it is to give corporations standing uh in tribunals all over the world in a way that uh that frankly, could undercut the things that we have fought so hard for in this country to protect the public and allow uh, young people opportunity and low-income people to join the middle class. And as we say goodbye, and again, thank you for your time this morning, what is the timetable and, and, and what can people do right now? Is this a done deal? Is this anything that we can do? It's obviously not a done deal. They're trying to, they're trying, they're fast tracking fast track itself. Mm. But, um, uh, people should weigh in. I mean, this, this is going to be a close, it wasn't a close voting committee. It never is. Those committees, Ways and Means and, and Finance Committee and the Senate are sort of stacked to with free traders, frankly, always have been as far as I know. Um, but on the Senate floor, this is beatable. On the House floor, it's even more beatable and people should weigh in with their members of Congress, their House members, their Senate members. Um, and it's not about rallies and demonstrations. It's really about calls and letters okay. and, and emails and text messages and anything you can do to put pressure on members of Congress. All right. Well, now that's what including we're Including this do. show. Including <laughs> this show, I would add. Okay. Well, that's what we're going to do. Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown, I thank you so much for your time this morning on WBAI's Morning Show. Glad to do it. Thank you. All right. Appreciate that. Uh, this uh, this particular segment was produced, by the way, by Jillian Jonas, and we appreciate her help and support on the morning show for uh, uh, bringing Ohio Senator Sherrod Brown to the airwaves of WBAI 744, just about 745. Don't forget, coming up at 8 o'clock will be Democracy Now!, but we have more program ahead on the morning show. Stay with us. Hi everyone, Juliana Forlano here from the Juliana Forlano Show on WBAI in New York City. Hey, what are you doing the weekend of May 29th, 2015? I know where I'll be, at the Left Forum. Have you been? If not, you're missing the most powerful, transformational conversations of the year. You're here, I can see your eyes sparkling because you're on fire, not just for justice, but we're talking about revolution. If you don't give us reform, you will get revolution. Oh yes, we embrace the reformers, those who want to tinker, okay, if you want to be in incremental fine but just don't stop there we're calling for fundamental transformation of american capital society when was the last time you got to hear people talking like this capitalism and democracy are not synonymous they've been on opposite sides of each other since the advent of the republic come add your voice to these powerful discussions left forum may 29th through the 31st at the john jay college of criminal justice in new york city for more information go to leftforum.org 
Hi, thank you so much for listening today to our show. Um, I'm Katie Halper, and we are so excited to have with us live in studio, sitting right next to me, the very funny comedian, uh, Renaissance man, Justin Williams. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And Justin, you do comedy around New York City, New Jersey. You have shows. Tell us about yourself. Absolutely. I, I, you know, I, I travel, so I'm, I, I get booked anywhere people will have me. I, I'll be at a gas station in Oklahoma right. <laughs> later. Uh, any Anywhere where there's an audience. And even where there's usually not an audience, bar I'll mitzvahs? be performing. Bar mitzvahs? Oh, yes, bar mitzvahs have are great. Have you done one? Oh, yes. Wow. I've done a, I've I... done a, I've done a lot of gigs. Um, I performed in bowling alleys. Wow! Uh, I'm, I'll be performing on the seven train on the way home. Nice. It's going to be great. Every uh, every every appearance is a potential. Sh- I mean, just walking down the street is a potential. Yes, is a potential show. Right, life is your show oyster, if you will. <laughs> um, so, what have you been thinking about making jokes about related to the news lately? Um, any thoughts about Baltimore? I know you posted something on Facebook about this very exciting, inspiring story about um, Wells Fargo pushing mortgage deals on black people. Um, do you want to tell us just a little about that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people, you know, uh, you know, the the common thing in the United States is to blame people. Right. <laughs> you know, like, uh, oh, the, the reason why this neighborhood looks like that is uh, because of the people that live there. But right. uh, what we're because they're we're, masochists. Yeah. Yes, they enjoy it. Um, people because people prefer uh, to have forty uh, percent vacancies in their neighborhood. Right. People like that. Right. Um, so, to, uh, what we found out is that predatory lending was the was the source of all this, which is is great because if you actually look at the, some of the language in there, it's actually like absolute, all the things that people say don't exist in America anymore are in the language here right. where it's like, literally there's a guy who's the man who works for the banks that's like socially engineering all of this misery, right. you know. There's literally a Dr. Evil person right. uh, who's a racist right. <laughs> who's and the head of a bank. Right. You know. Uh, these documents are great. It's, to me it was like, it was an amazing amazing news story. Amazing window into the, into the uh, racism that exists because I like when racism is open right like there's something refreshing about it so apparently there are these documents that revealed um, that people uh, Wells Fargo were were referring to people as um, those people have bad credit those people don't pay their bills and they called them mud people Yes, which is good because um, I'm an African American and I actually hadn't heard mud people. Right. So to to hear mud people is good because it shows that they're still innovating and Wait, that's who in this. Who is this? Um, someone from Wells Fargo. Ah. Yes, yes. Mm. And and the irony is they say these people don't have good credit and don't pay their bills, but the the story in the New York Times shows that people that actually had good credit and did pay their bills were pushed into subprime mortgages because of their race. Um, So it becomes like this uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. prophecy, Yeah. yeah. Are you going to now reappropriate on air the term mud people in a historic moment? I have a comedy album coming out. It's called Justin Williams' Mud People. Nice. Uh, Mud person. Mud person, yes. Make it more personal. You don't (laughs) want to speak for others, right? I don't want to speak for all the mud people. Exactly. Um, I think Al Sharpton does that. Right. It's true. Is he featured on your album? Al Sharpton is on my album. Oh, good. Um, He's very good. Both Al Sharptons are on my album. Al Sharpton, the sweatsuit, a gold chain, Al Sharpton's on the album. 
And then the the skinny Al Sharpton right. closes the album. Oh, good. So uh, we have him, he evolves on the album as he does in real life. People need to see a progression. Just right. you know, like civil rights is a progression. So is right. Al Sharpton. Evolution. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Aesthetic his, weight. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Although I think he overdid it. I'd like to see a little bit more meat on his bones. I'm I've been trying to. Yeah. I've been trying to sneak him ribs and stuff. Yeah. So Al, if you're listening, we love you. But yeah. <laughs> don't overdo it. Don't go, go manorexic on us. Yeah, because I think you know. I think he, when he when he came with weight and he came with the, the medallions right. I think he had more respect in the public eye he did he was he had more gravitas if you will yes absolutely right? literally and you know and we more. should get we should get old Al Sharpton to to compete against Chris Christie in this next election yes we should that's that would be great yeah, be you know uh, Chris Christie made a transition himself he used to be a real jock in oh, high yeah. school, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and, and now he's just someone who's vicious towards New Jersey's urban centers. Right. He's uh, that. And you, and you are a, a citizen of New Jersey, correct? I am. I, I've lived in downtown New York, New Jersey for the last two years. So it's was, it was great. If you live in a city, uh, like I love where people are like, how could this happen? And you live in a city like New York that has so many things in common. New York is, New York is like Baltimore except with less white people. Oh, um, so okay. it's like, yeah, we know how this could happen. Right. Uh, it's you should do some PSAs. But Newark's great. It gets an unfair reputation. I love it there. Great uh, Portuguese food. A great Portuguese food. Amazing soul food. Amazingly nice people. Um, it's great. And corporate America's coming to take all that back. So I got to right. buy a house before. I'm probably going to get a subprime loan Yeah, now. go do it. My I'll daddy talked about that before he passed away, about the uh, the corporate running pell-mell back into Newark to get that back. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so that is happening for sure. Oh, I've, I've, I've been there two years. I Out my window, I'm looking at over a billion dollars of investment wow. construction wow. that's wow. finishing yeah, in the right. next year. Mm. Uh, I live across the street from the Whole Foods that's going in with oh, luxury God. apartments. Oh, wait, 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 hold up. They're yeah. the worst. The Whole Foods in Newark? Uh, Whole Foods in Newark. Oh, my goodness. They're yes. terrible. The guy who owns them is terrible. He's like anti-Obamacare. He's the worst. Yeah, but I but I got to get my kale somewhere. You know, it's I can true. only... I'm a tired man of, needs his yeah. kale. Yeah, I'm a tired man needs of... his kale. Why are they... Do not try to get between a man and his kale. It gets ugly. I've been going to the Portuguese store for two years. I'm tired of eating chorizo. I love yeah, I love I all my Portuguese people, but you know I got to get some kale or something. They could know. make some good Portuguese rice and put some uh, kale in there. But I thought we could also look at some of the really creative because I want to give right wing people credit for being really creative in in looking for the sources and the causes behind the Baltimore riot. So I don't know if you saw this. Um, but um, Rand Paul, who always, you know, has his finger on the pulse of the African American community, as he's, you probably know, he's got a lot of soul. You he know? does have a lot of yeah. soul. He said that uh, when he was asked on, by Laura Ingram's, uh, what was behind this, the stuff in Baltimore, he said there are so many things we can talk about: the breakdown of the family structure, the lack of fathers, the lack of a moral code in our society. So uh, <laughs> I like that. I think that's a good insight. Yeah, it has nothing to do with predatory lending. Yeah. Uh, predatory uh, police prison industrial complex, the uh, shipping of manufacturing and middle class jobs overseas no, for a steady either. fifty no. years, uh, racist uh, redlining policies. You know what? It, but you know, it's why are you? Why do you have to talk about race? You're the racist. You're the one talking about race. Well, do you like that argument? The, uh, well, that is true. And I also, you know, uh, like Martin Luther King was racist because he talked about race all the time. He, you know, he was a race baiter all of the time. <laughs> he was talking about race. That Martin Luther King. Uh, you read his speeches; it's always I about know. race. Hello, you need. 
need to expand. I mean, not true because he actually talked about class and Vietnam and imperialism. But yes, but, but yeah. Well, you know, he you know, he only got a year of that. Right. Um, right. <laughs> when he started doing that, then that uh, was a, yeah, that's his last hit. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, I no, I I think uh, these are all plausible explanations. I actually blame rap music for all of this. Oh. I think rap music abandoned those houses. They um, it did. It did. Well, I blame the lack of the moral code in America. That's why I like remember like the lack of the moral code. Don't we bomb a country like every two weeks? Right. Well, that's for, innovation. Like, <laughs> that's entrepreneur entrepreneurship. When did we ever have a moral code? America's a struggle. We don't. We never had some moral code. I think we did. It was in the the three fifths clause. I <laughs> that, think that's where it started. That's where it was. America's. It's just. It's, we're all going to war to to get the little crumbs. Uh, against each other. I, that, why is this moral code where everything was great? That is a moral code. I mean, it's immoral, but it's still, I guess it is a code, right? We are consistent, kind of, in it's, our it's being like, immoral. It's like where they say the decline of cities. Like, you right. know, the cities are corrupt and violent places. It's like, oh, you mean like the good old days when right. organized crime and their political machines right. ran our cities. Right. Those were the good old times. Right. <laughs> um, another person, um, rep. Representative Bill Flores of Texas, not surprisingly, uh, traced the problems in Baltimore to gay marriage, of course, um, because uh, he says, look at what is going on in Baltimore today. You see the issues that are raised there. Healthy marriages are the ones between a man and a woman because they can have a healthy family and they raise children in a way that's best for their future, not only socially, but psychologically, economically, from a health perspective. There's nothing like traditional marriage that does that for a child. Each of us have a mother and a father, and there's no way to get around that. Okay, this is what's so weird about right-wing sort of conflicting because on one case, they're arguing that no dads are around, and in the other case, they're like, you have too many dads. Exactly. Pick a side. Yeah, we can decide. No no pun intended. I wish I had, listen, listen, my parents are straight. Uh, I wish I had two black dads better than the no black dad I have. Yeah. I'll take two black dads. Are there any gay couples that would like to adopt me? Yes, I'm 31. Well, but whatever, but I but too late. if you want to take me in, he's very adorable. You don't see him because it's just radio. Very nice looking fellow. I like, uh, I like the idea that you're healthier too if you have yes, straight you parents. Are. Like you, you get do. straight you vaccinations. Out, yeah, exactly. You're immune. You're immune to the to the gay uh, cooties. I think that are running around. Uh, the water. <laughs> they put it. That's why they're against fluoride. It's actually a gay thing. Um, well, are you going to go to a cultural institution? What are they scared of that? <laughs> like, yeah, exactly. You go to a museum. You go to a, a chamber music concert. Forget it. You're going to make a neighborhood nicer. Exactly. <laughs> Antiquing. Whoa. Um, and then, oh, Joe Walsh, who I love. I've been a big fan of his. Um, he's the one who made this charming video. I don't know if you guys remember where he said, Obama, quit lying. He has this really thick Chicago accent. But he had a great thing to say on Twitter. He said, want to blame someone for Baltimore besides the thugs? Blame Democrats who have purposely turned blacks into uneducated government slaves. That that kind of rhetoric, I think, is good for outreach. It is. Uh, the way to win over the black voter is to use the slavery reference. Right. In your rhetoric. Right. It resonates. Yeah. Yeah. The NAACP is ready to endorse now. I think uh, he's accomplished his mission. He should be the new spokesman for the NAACP. He he should be. He should be. Um, You know, him. We we get him. Ben Carson. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Other people. Alan Keyes. Alan Keyes. And we could have we could we could have a real party. A real party. And Matt Drudge, you should invite him, too, because he's someone who, again, he totally nailed it. He had a picture of a man looting, quote unquote, looting. I love the way, by the way, the right wing, they find pictures of people holding like diapers. Yeah. Like that is the symbol of evil. Like, okay, (laughs) if I have to see another black father with diapers. Talk about a lack of a moral code. Yeah, I like, I like it. <laughs> like, you know, it's like poor people stealing absolute necessities. I know, it's like baby it's, formula, and they're <laughs> yeah. indicting them. So yeah. he has a picture, Matt Drudge, of Drudge Report 
uh, schlock, whatever. He has a picture of a man holding up um, ba- what looks like uh, paper towels. Can't tell the the thick the ply count or whatever. But he he then said. Whatever Obama has been doing for the past seven years, it hasn't worked. Hashtag Baltimore riots. I think it's fair to trace the problems in Baltimore to the last seven years. Me too. I think, Specifically uh, I think to the a, president. That's a solid sociological observation right. there. That it's really been since Obama's elections that inner cities have declined. Right. And, um, right. Yeah. And because of him. Um, he, I mean, it's some, as you said, it's really astute political science that's being conducted over there. And then Alan Keyes, of course, um, had a great comparison. He mentioned um, Obama's socialist background, uh, dictatorial power, and compared the people in Baltimore to the Confederacy. This is the rhetoric that allowed him to defeat Obama to become senator <laughs> exactly. of Illinois. Right. And then he didn't say like, he said, Obama is a socialist. He's the, he's the smartest dumb person ever. Because didn't he go he to like is. Dartmouth? Or, Maybe. Yeah, he's like an Ivy League educated. Did but he? but wow. he, but the things he says are so crazy. He's like, Obama's building a spaceship that will. And you're like, what are you talking Take you about? Take you to the Kremlin. Right, directly <laughs> to the Kremlin. Um, any, anyone? Oh, what about uh, Donald Trump's talk about nuance and, and genius? Uh, he, he tweeted, our great African-American president hasn't exactly had a positive impact on the thugs who are so happily and openly destroying Baltimore. Well, a lot of presidents actually did better jobs with that. You know, Reagan actually had oh. a lot of um, a lot of influence over thugs. He did. He had great. He had his finger on the thug pulse. The Crips and the Bloods were angry that George Bush Sr. was defeated. Yeah, they were <laughs> yeah. so. They did not read his lips. Yeah. <laughs> they did not want to read his lips. Um, Justin, how can we find you on Twitter? You can go to at justinw.com and you can go to my website, justinwilliamscomedy.com. I'll be performing in a nightclub, bar, restaurant, or bowling alley near you. Or bar mitzvah. Or bar mitzvah. Or bar mitzvah. Yeah, yeah, I'm going to book you. <laughs> and uh, I'm at KT Helps, letter K, letter T, H A L P S. And you can find me at Michael G. Haskins. That's going to wrap it up for us today. Uh, Katie, great. And thank you so much for coming all the way into the studio. Were were you in the neighborhood or did you come from Newark? I came from Newark. Can you believe it? I didn't need a passport or anything. I just took the train. All right. We thank you so much. Please stay (laughs) tuned for Democracy Now! That's coming up next. We have an announcement uh, about the People's Organization for Progress. We'll take care of that just at 9 o'clock here on WBAI 99.5 FM. This is the morning show. Mario Murillo in studio. And it won't even be this studio, but he'll All be right. in studio tomorrow. Tomorrow Brooklyn. we'll see you then. Brooklyn. Brooklyn, we'll see you then. WBAI New York. Their descendants run the State Department the CIA now. The policies are not that different. Um,